Have you heard about the new MagnaGrip Pro Nozzle? The MagnaGrip Pro Nozzle is the easiest, most advanced nozzle ever, protecting you from the dangers of diesel exhaust fumes. With its patented flex magnet technology, the Pro Nozzle easily attaches with one hand from a standing position, can snap on from any angle, and fits flush to the apparatus, saving a ton of space. A MagnaGrip is the only exhaust removal system that offers a true 100% seal. For free grant assistance and to learn more, go to magnagrip.com. Welcome to the Command Show, starring Anthony Castros and Brian Brush. Hey everybody, it's Anthony Castros here, sans my dear friend Brian Brush. He has other commitments this evening, but I wanted to just put a shout out to my friend, uh, thank him for his tireless efforts and partnership with the show and many other adventures and enterprises, so thank you, my brother. Um, so everybody, thanks for showing up tonight. We have a lot of people actually on the call already, um, and I'm sure a lot more of you are going to download later and listen to your crews. As we always do, I'm going to start with um, a shout-out to the uh, NIOSH 5. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about the NIOSH 5 now. I uh, hear people talking about it when we go to classes, which is great because that's what we want. Um, but it's, remember, it's important to remember that the NIOSH 5 isn't just for line of duty deaths, it's not just causal factors. Um, it's also near misses, significant injuries, close calls, and just dysfunctional fires on operations. If you look at your operations and they're dysfunctional, sloppy, you had a close call and near miss, and it didn't make a NIOSH report, thank God. It probably still had one of the five, which is lack of or improper risk assessment, which is size up, inadequate communications, inadequate accountability, lack of or inadequate into the command, and finally not having SOGs and not following the ones you have. So with that, we kick off every class, or every, I should say, well, class as well, but every show with those five things. And um, I want to jump in to tonight's topic, which is getting ready before the rescue. Um, I'm going to make the mic hot for a couple of listeners here uh, and uh, see if they'd like to join us. One in particular as a guest for this evening, Battalion Chief Brett Loomis from uh, Corvallis, Oregon, a longtime friend and also one of our lead instructors in our system. Very experienced, and he and I are going to talk about that this evening. Are you there, Brett? Hi, Chief. How are you? Good, brother. Thanks for having me you. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, can uh, you hear pleasure. me all right? Yep, I got you. Perfect. So, Perfect. For, for those of you out... Uh, in fire engineering land who receive monthly magazines, you probably noticed that Brian Brush and I put out a, an article this month called that, uh, basically setting up a tactical supervisor for known rescues. I hope you read that article. We're going to talk about that uh, a little bit tonight and the importance of that from a command standpoint. But before the incident even happens, we need to talk about how to set up for rescue and really make our minds right, our rigs right, our gear right, our everything. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. So Chief Loomis and I have been longtime friends. Uh, he's 
again, one of our lead instructors and our operations manager for our team. Without him, we wouldn't be doing what we're doing. So I just want to thank you first, my brother, for all that you do to help us make uh, the classes, the training, and everything we do possible. So thank you very much for that. Thank, thank you, brother. Love you. So let's talk about it. This is the topic that you wanted to discuss tonight, which I think is totally appropriate, um, given the article and given the tenor of our training. Uh, it's about putting the victims first, and it's about being aggressive, not just in strategy and tactics, but in command and having an ICS posture that leans into the incident, that plans on having a victim, and um, is proactive. So why don't we talk about some of the things we mentioned or discussed today in our conversation about kind of setting things up for the rescue and for just being victim-oriented and victim-centered. Yeah, for sure. And, um, you know, I think there's been so much, there's so much, so much good work that you and Brian and so many agencies are doing about putting the victim first and getting that R in RECIO back at the top of the priority list. Um, and there's been some amazing cultural shifts, you know, throughout the profession in getting our mindsets right. You know, my organization, my morning briefings, generally include be, be at work today prepared to make a rescue, you know, just reminding everybody that at any second that time could happen. And um, over the years, you know, in Corvallis and then in, in my previous world in California, overseeing a lot of apparatus changes and those types of things is we always talk about the human culture and getting everybody in the right mindset, but do we – are we truly adopting that culture at every fabric of the organization, you know, apparatus design? You know, there's been a lot of great work going on with apparatus design and making apparatus more firefighter friendly for safety. And, the, the, you know, the debate about clean cabs, you know, SCBA is in, SCBA is out, and the preparation for going and, and getting that victim, um, you know, that, that civilian rescue and, um you know, positioning of ladders. You know, I think a big trend in the organ in the fire service. I think we've seen it for years now. Is you know those fire engines with the rescue bodies and not kind of the old traditional you know ladders hanging on the outside of the engine type of thing, which some agencies still do. And you know, it's great. But you know, when we have when we have um, you know, we're trying to do multiple tasks with one platform and. Are we truly designing those apparatus to with that really that R at the top of the list? And you know, fire station access as well. You know, my my headquarters station is a large station, eighteen thousand, nineteen thousand square feet. And as we're building and redesigning stations, are we building them in mind with rapid access to the apparatus floor and clear access to you know, the apparatus, you know, just just every little nuance. And, and Oni, you and I say it time and time again, and so many of those people that have influenced us, you know, say it that, you know, seconds matter. You know, we say seconds, seconds save minutes, minutes save lives type of thing. And are, is, is that really being ingrained in all cultures? So, you know, that it's just something that's been sticking in my mind. And a lot of agencies are doing a lot of great work with it, but getting that mindset beyond just human being humanly ready and if your organization is not there having that be part of your um your mindset is okay is my rig really 100 percent ready to support me doing a rescue maybe not so what do i need to do 
as that company officer, that driver, that firefighter, to know exactly what I need to do to be as absolutely efficient as possible on my assigned apparatus so that when I'm going into a job, confirmed rescue or otherwise, because it's our job to search and find out that I'm going to give that civilian victim that fighting chance. So just just something that we've been talking about in my organization, and I know it's happening all over all over the profession. It is, and I think it's a it's a subset of an overall strategic, maybe maybe cultural shift in the fire service across the country as we've been traveling the nation together. You and I and our team, we're seeing more and more departments refocusing on the victim, the civilian victim. Not that not that firefighter safety isn't paramount not that clean cabs aren't aren't are an important thing and all that however i think we went through a season this is something we've been talking about in our, in our training and our articles as well went through a season i'm going to say 10 to 15 years maybe 20 where the focus was on everything but the civilian victim and right i'm happy to, to see this shift back do you are you sensing that too i know we've talked about that as well and you're talking about it in your department when you have talks with the, our students in different places around the country, most recently Miami, Florida, um, there's definitely when, even the articles we're reading on fire engineering uh, and the conversations you have in the classes. You look at the classes that are lined up for FDIC this year. There's just a refocus on the civilian victim, which is so refreshing. So, a yeah, are you seeing it? as much as I am, which I know you are, but I want to hear some specifics, some conversations you've had. And B, why do you think it is? Um, well, I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you an example from um, my organization about six months ago, um, which, which I think is it's happening, and these are the reasons it's happening, is, is the, you know, the culture extends beyond just the walls of the firehouse, right? We've got We've got first responders that before us that take that call, right? Dispatchers, and you know, dispatchers near and dear to my heart. And um, it was a Sunday morning. I had everybody down at the tower for drill because Sunday morning is drill day in, in our department. Um, and we got a job at 9:30 in the morning for a residential fire with person traps. And just about six months before that, I had done training with our dispatchers, the first, one of the first trainings that they had ever had with the fire department where I talked to them about the, um, the, the fire call for the fire department is an in-progress call, just like a robbery is for the police department. Right. And dispatchers across the nation, because so many dispatch centers are law-centric, um, and it's it's not a dig on our, our law partners. It's just that's how they've been designed and grown up. Um, so when when I put it in that mindset, it um, it really opened some eyes. So my dispatcher, who I've got a great relationship with, um, was able to keep uh, keep the um, call take or the caller on the phone. She had stepped out of the shower, walked into a wall of black smoke. She was in her back bedroom with her dog. And because of the training we had done ahead of time, my dispatcher was able to tell me that she was in the right rear corner of the uh, house and that you go in the front door and you make a right and you make a left, and that would be the room of origin. Now, fortunately, she was able to self-rescue 
out the back window just about the time myself and the first engine was arriving. But the dispatcher told me afterwards, she said, had you not done that training with me six months ago, I would have just told her to get out of the house. I wouldn't have known to ask those additional questions. So um, I I looked at that as, as an amazing success in Corvallis, Oregon, with that, you know, that better partnership and relationship with our dispatch center, we were ready. I mean, I was on the radio with my first engine, just tell him, be ready to go in for rescue because we were all coming from the same place. So we were all going to arrive at the same time. So I had the ability to have my full deck right in front of me. Um, and I think the other thing is, is that, you know, we all focus on NFERS reporting, right? That's a big deal. NFERS reporting, yeah. to, to answer the second part of your question, Chief, is um, gathering data, right? Fire fatalities and fire injuries and the type of building. But it, it, we, we never captured the rescue that's going on. And with the development of some great social media sites uh, with Firefighter Rescue Survey, with uh, Search Culture um, and the various sites, it's in our face every day now. You know, I can't look at social media every day without seeing a civilian rescue or rescues that have happened somewhere in the United States every day. And I think that has been a huge component. Sometimes social media can be our nemesis, right? But in this situation, I think that sharing of valuable, valuable information and valuable data has just reinvigorated us to be like, yeah, this is why we exist. Rescue is our top priority. Exactly, exactly. And that's that's. I know that wasn't intentional, but that was the that's the name of that article that Brian and I wrote a couple of years ago. That, that kind of it was interesting to get some pushback on that article. It was called "Civilian Rescue: The Reason We Exist." Not a lot of pushback. You know, there's always one or two people that are going to disagree yeah. what you say. Yeah. But but I found that that the their posture was was not really. It seemed like a more of an emotional one than it was a um, psychological discussion. Um, but yeah. that, that's for another time and place over, over a drink at FDIC. But, um, you know, the thing, especially speaking of social media, I know we have firefighterrescuesurvey.com now, thanks to um, all the all the guys working over on that program, including Brian and many others um, from Clackamas and, and other places. But, yeah, it, it's yeah. amazing their work and the awareness level that's gone up. Um, and if you haven't, if you're listening to this, you've never heard of that, please visit firefighterrescuesurvey.com where you can enter data on uh, a civilian rescue. And they're finding that on average, there's 10 civilian rescues a day made by firefighters. Now this doesn't mean, this doesn't mean uh, people who have self rescued. This isn't people who've been rescued by law enforcement. This is firefighters going and getting somebody out. There's on average 10 a day. And the data from that is staggering. It's, it's not only quantitative data, but it's qualitative data. You know, we're finding out that VEIS by far and away is the, is the most successful tactic at 86% survival because of uh, the fact that we obviously get to them quicker, we get them out of the atmosphere faster instead of pulling them through. Uh, the fires or victims found pre-knockdown, pre-knockdown are more likely to survive. Um, and so there are those and other tactical considerations are coming out of that data because now we're over 3,000 rescues surveyed. And that's a heck of an awesome data set. Um, so I think that's helping a lot. A lot more and more firefighters yep. will go have heard of firefighterrescuesurvey.com. Um, you know, 
talk more about the dispatcher mindset because I think it's every little thing. Like we said, training saves seconds, seconds save minutes, minutes save lives. So you have to find every possible place you can shave time off of your of your interval, and that can be from 911 and the dispatcher, like you said. It could be how you set up your rig. It could be how you staff your rig. It could be um, response levels, staffing levels, um, pre-planning. There's a million different ways to shave those seconds off. We've seen all of those work. I think the least the least common is to reach out to your dispatchers and train with them. So um, can you speak to that? And before you do, let's, I want to see if we have, our other callers want to participate. Uh, we have one more yeah. caller on from the 831 area code, uh, 884 prefix. If you're still there, do you want to join us in the conversation? 831 884 you want to join us? Maybe, you know what? Maybe they don't know their own phone number anymore because, you know, it's cell phones and stuff. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I'm going to take that. I'm going to take that as a no. So we're just going to put you on listen mode. Um, so talk about how you, how you uh, approached your dispatchers. What was like the opening volley that got them to want to listen and, and participate in the training? You know, it's, it's, it's funny that you asked that question because it, it actually goes all the way back to my very first shift. Um, and, you know, I work for a great organization, and we've got a great team. And my first day on the job was a Saturday. It was a 24-hour shift, and the person that was training me was actually my Station 1 company officer who had been a long-term acting BC. And so I, mm. I came in. I was like, hey, it's nice to meet you, and hey, good to meet you. We're excited to have you on board. And he basically said, so what do you want to do today? And I said, well, I guess I should probably go out to all the stations and meet the people that are going to be working with me and I'm going to be working with. And I said, and I want to see the dispatch center. And he said, no problem. Right. We can make all that happen. So it started that day and um, with just building relationships. I'm a big believer in, right, having the face time before you need them and having a dispatch right. background myself which was such right. an amazing job for a young kid right out of high school for me. Um, I have lifelong friendships from it. Um, just seeing that other side, not being able to see with your eyes and just hearing right. and, and trying to build that picture. So I really wanted to start that personal connection early. And, um, and then it, uh, once I, I was able to build some trust um, with all levels of the dispatch organization. Um, they said, you know, we're rolling out all dispatcher training for the first time in years and years and years, and we'd like you to come and do some teaching. And I, I basically took some snippets out of Calm the Chaos, and I took some of my own videos, and I took some of our own recordings, and I put together, you know, uh, uh, basically a slideshow. And I showed them, you know, what hostile fire events look like, and I talk to them about building construction, so when they hear, you know, two-story taxpayer and arrival report, they have some idea of what we're talking about. Um, and then mm -hmm. I took them through the call taking, and, and I think that most impactful one was the thing I talked about. When I made the, when I made the nexus between an in-progress fire call and an in-progress uh, law call, the, the lights came on yeah. all over the place. And immediately yeah. the next day, um, I heard I heard changes on the radio that were so positive you know we have uh we're the, we're home to oregon state university and we've got five six seven story buildings uh, dormitories science buildings and the whole bit and you'll get one person on a fifth floor that will call and say we smell smoke but there was no right. policies in place about 
okay, how do you evacuate the building? So it was have them pull the fire alarm, get that evacuation right. started, right? Having that R right in our mind. And literally two shifts later, we had, uh, it came in as a commercial fire for a smoke smell on the fourth floor. And the dispatcher said, we told them to pull the fire alarm. And it, that wow. helped us tremendously with a, you know, ahead of the evacuation. <laughs> Excuse me, everybody. So, um, it really started with the relationship, you know. I mean, we talk a lot about relationship by objective, and my objective was to break down that wall and have us be more present. Yeah. And when I'm out at 2 in the morning, last shift, I was out at 2 in the morning, and I swing in to see the midnight shift. And mm-hmm. I'll stop in on the day shift, and I'll stop in on the swing shift, and occasionally I'll take them some goodies or whatever it is. And um, just to just to remind them that, we're out there and we've got their backs and we need them to have our backs. So, Paramount. And I think, I think dispatchers are, go ahead. I was just going to say it's for me and for our organization, it's, it's paid off huge. We've, we've seen some, some much better incidents and much better relationship because of just that investment. And that's really how it works with everybody, isn't it? Those we said relationship by objective. We we used to have those relationships with our managers of our apartment complexes. We would conduct our drills out in the apartment complexes, pre-planning, but then live hands-on drills with smoke machines, et cetera. And unbelievable how accommodating and supportive they were to us performing those drills. And then we had this incredible tactical advantage going in. Instead of a simple pre-plan or walkthrough, it was we literally would pull hose through these complexes and sometimes into into a, uh, vacant apartment buildings and, and or apartments, smoke machines, and doing scenarios with, with occupants even um, to help kind of role play. Um, yeah. And I think the last people that you, the last people that, that get considered are dispatchers, which is silly because if you think about it, they're, they're kind of the front line. They're the ones that from the beginning can make or break the incident. I've had dispatchers that like you who have, made all the difference because they asked the right questions, they conveyed the right information. I've also had dispatchers that did not tell us critical information, like that everybody was out uh, of the structure. Right. And when we talk about victim profile in our training, um, the sooner you get the victim profile, the better. And, um, you know, Firefighter Rescue Survey has confirmed scientifically through the data that the more we know about the victim ahead of time, i.e. in route or upon arrival, and get that victim profile, the more likely we are to rescue them successfully and they'll survive. And so the dispatcher right. is part of that interface. It's so critical. So everybody out there listening, reach out to your dispatch centers, reach out to your dispatch supervisors and do some training and do some uh, a walkthrough, talkthroughs with them. Have them ride along. Uh, I think yep. it's, it's been incredibly useful when we've done that in the past. And like you, I've same thing. You got to the dispatch center a couple times a year and just say, hi, um, you know, bring some treats or something and just say, look, we, uh, we're only as good as, as the weakest link and we're all on the same chain. So let's, let's build that relationship, build that training. So, so I wanted to uh, kind of switch gears a little bit here and talk to the folks about some of the training we've been doing and what we're seeing and the uncanny results of what we're seeing. Um, and then we'll go back to uh, talking about setting up the rig and the mindset. Yeah. So um, sure. as mentioned earlier, we, we were just in Miami, Florida, uh, Miami Fire Rescue Florida, the city of Miami, just an amazing organization. We're very blessed to 
have trained with their executive staff, their chiefs and their company officers in both command and leadership. And we really talked about and, and trained on mission command and mission driven culture. And from the top down, from the fire chief down, it, it permeated beautifully. And one of the things that we see in the departments that host Calm the Cast, because we're doing it, we're doing a train the trainer version now all around the country. It's, it's grant funded, so you can use your uh, AFG funding and apply. Um, you can reach out to us at, at info at trainedfirefighters.com, and we'll send you um, a proposal with G uh, assistance of firefighter grant applications that have been successful around the nation. Um, what we're seeing is an uncanny, consistent uh, effect where within a week to, to a month at the most, these fire departments where we conduct the training are, are having at the very least significant fires, if not most of them are having a little rescue. I'm making a grab in short order after we were at the training. And the, the record now is Miami because the night that we did the last day of training, they actually had two, two rescues. And one of the one of the uh, captains that was in the class was first in, and they made two rescues uh, in, the, in the rest of Miami Fire. And uh, it was amazing to hear the story. I appreciated hearing it. But we've heard similar stories from Oklahoma City when we did the training there, Fresno, Kern County, um, Columbus, Indiana, uh, just throughout the country. It's been uncanny. And um, I think, I don't know, when you're training and you're thinking about rescues, Something happens. Something just happens. And I think God gives us, gives the uh, rescues to the people who are ready. And uh, in, in our travels, what are some of the conversations you have, you've had? I mean, how uncanny is it to, to see this phenomenon happen that right after the training, a short time after the training, they have a rescue and they're able to apply what we taught them? Oh, yeah. I'm, I mean, you know, I opened that, excuse me, I opened that train the trainer class with, you know, the, okay, our track record is within about two weeks after we end this class, Miami Fire Rescue is going to have a confirmed rescue. And sure enough, what was it, two hours after we drove off the drill grounds on that Thursday night is when it happened. And, um, it, you know, th- those are the things that we're hearing. And that and those stories are getting around also, you know, uh, the, 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 the feedback that we're getting from, you know, man, when I started down this class and I was selected for the class, I was thinking, you know, I feel like I'm a well-trained firefighter and I feel like I'm motivated and I feel like if I've given a rescue, I'm going to take it. But then afterwards, when it happens, they're like completely different different level of engagement, you know, to an extreme, just, you know, kind of that lighting that fire within. And, you know, that's the feedback that I'm getting a lot and the sidebar conversations and, um, you know, there are two or three sidebar conversations, you know, because every agency has those um, those sentinel fires, right? And, right. Um, and you know, they were talking about those in the class in, in Miami, and, and sure enough, that night, you know, two successful grabs to, you know, to, uh, to survivors, thanks to, you know, the brothers and sisters of Miami. I mean, they, they just did it. They made it happen and couldn't be prouder of them for, you know, what they're doing down there, the leadership that their chief and their organization, all of everybody, all levels of their organization, you know, just amazing. Yeah, it, it was, it was powerful. Um, the culture there is so palpable and strong and full of pride and, and they, they get a lot of work and they love what they do and they're close and they, and they tell it how it is. 
and uh, yep, they sure yeah, have do. been part of that organization for a couple of weeks to do two different trainings to to, um, to have some small part in that success, and for them to call us and say, "Man, you know, thank you for the training; it, it helped." Uh, is a is what we is why we do what we do, and so right. the training we're talking about, gang, is is hands-on training. It's not just simulations. It's not just uh, radio traffic, holding a radio, talking. It's it has to be hands-on. If you really want to take your training to the next level, you need to you need to have hands-on training. And this is something you can do at your department any given day on shift. Um, smoke machines, mannequins, hose lines. Uh, what I found over the years worked many times was just getting a verbal consent. And obviously, every department's got a different policy, has a different procedure to follow that. I, I was fortunate that my organization allowed me to get verbal consent and allowed us to perform these drills uh, in occupied apartments, um, non-destructive, uh, once again, with consent of management. And the, the, uh, the most important person in the link was the maintenance person who got us the apartment and got us access and so forth. But we would we would not tell the crews where they were going. We would just let them know we're going to do a drill. We'd stage them, you know, within a half a mile or so of the apartment complex. We'd get the smoke machines pumping, mannequins, and we'd also probably have some role players from the complex yelling at them when they pulled in to force them to get that victim profile. There's no shortcut. You can't you can't recreate the same amount of adrenaline, the fog of war, the confusion that you have when you have a hands-on drill that encompasses everything. It's not just rescue, search and rescue. It's everything. It's fire attack, it's search and rescue, it's forceful entry, it's getting the victim profile, it's set up divisions and groups, it's ventilation, it's the IC coming in and establishing those divisions and minimizing that radio traffic, maybe setting up a rescue group uh, like we talked about in the article this month. Um, and everybody who's engaged with that smoke and the noise that, of everybody there and the engines pumping and everything, pulling hose lines, SCBAs, the whole bit, we get done every single time it got done. Endorphins were, were were just flowing. And as the crews were taken up, whether it's one of the classes that we do or was a battalion drill that we used to do, the same thing you hear by talking about the fire and the victim, not the drill. And they talk about, man, it was so hard to see in there. And, and man, uh, when, I, when they came upon the victim, they never said it when I came upon the mannequin. They said, when I came upon the victim, and you know, I didn't, I didn't expect him to be in here or there or whatever. And um, just the smoke... The visibility of smoke, even if it's theatrical smoke from a smoke machine pulling up to an occupied apartment building at three o'clock in the afternoon or two or you know ten o'clock in the morning during a drill, that gets everybody's blood flowing. Knowing that they have to pull and stretch lines and charge those lines and everything else, and it it just inoculates them to the stressors of the fire ground, and so they're able to make clearer tactical decisions. They're able to slow down. When people talk about like Patrick Mahomes, you know he he has slowed the game down. What he's done, the game is the same pace. He has outpaced the game with his thinking. So he's able to slow it down in his mind. And that's what we want to mimic through our training is to slow the incident down in the mind of everyone there so they can see and really process faster and, at, and they're able to outpace the incident and therefore their time to task on getting to the victim, being aware of the situation, first of all, and then communicating effectively, accounting for where everybody is, choosing the right tactics, and getting that victim out of there into the hospital as fast as possible. That's all. That's like the opposite of the NAS five. You're now going to have an effective risk assessment, 
good incident command, clear communications, manual span of control, you're ahead of the incident, um, and, and it's just it's powerful. And the thing is, is you know, um, one of the things we, we talk about in our article is that unlike a mayday, you know, when you're, when you're uh, coming into an incident that has a known victim trap, if you know about it, that's a massive tactical advantage, right? You're coming into the scene and yeah. dispatch tells you, because you've trained with them, hey, we have a adult male on the second floor, you know, Charlie's side window bedroom, uh, and he's paraplegic or whatever. That's a massive tactical advantage coming in. Uh, or you teach your crews how to get a victim profile, you know, and, and is it low, is it moderate, higher, confirmed, and if it's confirmed, what's the signal? We'll go over that in a little bit here. But those types of, of that type of information is literally life-saving information. So imagine you get dispatched, and dispatcher doesn't just say, you know, victim trapped or possible victim trapped. Hey, possible two-year-old trapped in an upstairs back bedroom and then can give you even more information while you're responding. That information scientifically is proven now through firefighter rescue survey to save lives. So please, gang, get out there, do those drills in your apartment buildings and complexes, get that consent, work within your your, uh, processes and procedures and policies, um, but also talk to those dispatchers and do everything you can to make it successful. Unlike a mayday, which we don't ever have any preconceived notion of, there's no there's no, you know, hey, you're going to have a mayday when you get on scene. That doesn't happen. But you do know if you have a victim sometimes. And I believe the statistics in firefighter rescue survey, and I could be wrong, but I think I'm pretty close, is about 70% of the time it's accurate. 70 to 80% of the time it's accurate when you're told you have a victim, you do. When you're told you have one in the house, statistically you're going to have two. When you're told you have one in the apartment, you're statistically going to more likely have three. So, Knowing that ahead of time is, is going to be vital to your your time to task. So, what are your and thoughts Chief, on, if I remember, on that stuff? If, if I remember the statistics from 2022, you know, part of that 70 80 percent number, uh, when you're told that there's a, a rescue, it's coming from your dispatch center. It, it's it's coming during right. your in route time, if I if I'm not mistaken, and that's just such you know such a valuable such a valuable piece of information that you need to factor in. And if I could add one thing to that, uh, you know, troops out there, as you're, as you're going through and practicing this, um, when I was an operations chief in California, one of the things that we focused in, uh, a lot on in our academies was we introduced in on day one of the academy, my opening talk with the recruits was the importance of task, tactical, and strategic thought. And and stressing and driving home to those recruits the responsibility that they have of expertly executing the task that they're assigned. And then now as we're rolling out um, Calm the Chaos in my organization currently, I have two two-person uh, medic units that are floating around out there um, in the world running medical calls uh, sometimes with firefighter, two, you know, two probationary firefighter paramedics on them. And I had a, uh, I came in as an apartment job about three weeks ago uh, for smoke in an apartment, and the first unit on scene was one of my two-person medics, and the the probationary firefighter medic on there did a great arrival report, you know, painted a super clear yeah. picture of what they had when they arrived. 
So involving every level of your organization in these key concepts, and every firefighter should know what victim profiling is, and every firefighter should know how to get the signal. The more information they can gather while the rest of the while the rest of the uh, alarm is responding, the better off, better prepared we're going to be to save a civilian. Exactly. Well said. Well said. Hey, if you're just joining us, got the pleasure of talking with my dear friend, uh, Battalion Chief Brett Loomis of the Corvallis, Oregon Fire Department. He's also um, a 30 plus you're a veteran of the fire service, both from California and now in Oregon. And we, uh, we get to travel the country together with our, with our cadre teaching, uh, mastering fire ground command, common to chaos. And we're doing it in person and we're doing it hands-on. So if you're yep. interested, give us a, uh, an email, send us an email at info at trainedfirefighters.com. It's AFG funded. Um, we're about an, a year out now from scheduling because we just have a in- a huge influx of requests, but we, we will fit you in as soon as we can. Um, and we also have an online version of the class now that's a prerequisite. 32 hours of Calm the Chaos, much more detailed. Um, we show you countless command post videos uh, from uh, all the years I was on the floor as a battalion chief and had the privilege of running a uh, battalion 7A shift. And uh, we really wanted to share with you all that we've learned over the years and through this curriculum. And it's uh, NFPA, NIMS, ICS, uh, FESHI, and all that kind of stuff. So um, let's talk about victim profile. Uh, we've mentioned it a few times for anybody who hasn't heard it yet or know what it is. We talk about survivability profile, and my dear friend, uh, the time chief, Stephen Marser from FDNY, uh, that concept is, is critical to our success and our safety. You know, I've talked about that over the years. I'm sure we're going to be teaching together soon. We've talked about it. We're certainly going to write together, and I'm sure I'll have them on the show sooner than later. Um, tremendous work there. And um, a few years ago, we came up with Victim Profile, and I wanted that to be out there too because Victim Profile really gets us to the civilian victim. Do we have one, yes or no, or more than one? Finding that out as soon as possible. And rather than just finding out from dispatch and then heading in or somebody says, my baby's trapped, and we go, eyes rolled back, running in task level and snorting and ripping through the front door, getting the actual profile of, of where are they? If we have them, how many, where are they? What's their status? What's their, uh, what's their uh, current situation? So, for example, let's start with just victim profile as a concept. A low victim profile means that you pull up to a, to a scene and a credible witness tells you everyone's out of the house. For example, let's say it's a house. And let's say you pull up and it's Tuesday morning at 10 o'clock in the morning and the house is, is going to beat the band and a credible occupant, responsible reporting party says everyone's out. You got to ask them, you know, A, how do you know? And if they say, well, I live here and I live alone, then that's credible. And they have to be sane and sober. If they don't seem sane and sober or, or kind of iffy about why they think so, well, you know, I, I think they're gone or I think they're on vacation, that's not enough. So if, it's a, if, if they report everyone's out and it's credible, then we're still going to search the house based on the ability to, based on the other conditions, fire conditions, collapse potential, resource levels, et cetera. So a low victim profile means we have a low rate of return. There's a low likelihood of someone in there so we're still going to search, but we're not going to push the risk as much as we would if we had a high victim profile. The next 
threshold is a moderate victim profile. Moderate is that same house at 10 in the morning on a Tuesday and no one's around. There's nobody, there's no bystanders, there's no occupants, there's no neighbors. You just pull up to a standalone and no one's around to tell you anything. They're abandoned by watching. Nobody has any information. That's a moderate victim profile, which means, again, we're still going to search, but our amount of return on investment is moderate versus low when we're told no one's there. Moderate says, hey, we don't know. It could be higher than, than low. So we're going to go with moderate rate of return, and therefore we're going to allow ourselves a moderate amount of risk, again, based on other conditions on scene that have to be taken into consideration. The next level, that same house, it's night. It's nighttime. It's two in the morning, and there's two cars in the driveway. That's going to be a high victim profile. Even if no one's around, that's a high victim profile. Apartment complexes, virtually all day long, could be considered a high victim profile um, because of COVID and because of the economy and because of people cohabitating and fam- multiple families and apartments, people working from home, people not working. The general population is more likely to be home overall, especially in apartment complexes. So this could be a high victim profile, certainly if it's nighttime. And then a confirmed victim profile is the highest amount of risk we're willing to take. That means we have a credible witness that tells us somebody's inside. And then when they tell us that, you have to ask some questions. And we call that getting the signal. You have to ask that that, uh, reporting party more information, and it shouldn't take you more than about 10 seconds. What do you ask them? You don't just say, who is it, and then keep running. You don't just ignore them when they say somebody's trapped or my son's trapped or my baby's trapped. You don't just say, okay, we'll get them out and run in. You have to get some information that's going to save you valuable time that could save a life. So we get the signal. It stands for species, incapacity, gender, number, age, and location. The species is just that. When people say my baby's trapped, it could be their cat, their dog, their medicinal parakeet, their emotional support iguana. Who knows? If you're from California, God knows what you're going to see. But confirm this, it's a human life and not just my baby. I was literally having this conversation at the kitchen table one night, and we got a report of a fire down the street with rescue. And the lady was screaming, my baby, my babies, my babies, plural, and it was her dog's. So that's the first part. Incapacity. Does this person have some aspect, physical ailment or limitations going to make it more difficult to get them out? Are they morbidly obese? Do you need two or three crews where you thought you might just need one? Are they, are they blind? Are they deaf? Are they uh, unable to ambulate? Are they in a wheelchair? Uh, we did this training, and within a week or so, our friends in Columbus, Indiana, had a rescue and the lady was stuck in a uh, uh, hoyer lift for a wheelchair. And that was a key ingredient to the rescue, knowing that going in. Gender, male or female. If you're looking for my son and you find a daughter, that means you probably have more than one victim. Number, how many? Age, the age range helps us in targeted search areas. If we don't know where they are, then we know that children are going to be hiding that adults are typically between the fire and the front and back uh, means of egress, unless it's nighttime, maybe they're in their bedroom under the window. Uh, teenagers are going to be in the bathroom because they think that the, the, the uh, water from the shower is a point of refuge and they won't burn to death. Toddlers, babies are going to be in cribs. The key is where's the crib? And that brings us to location. 
So that should only take 10 seconds. So you pull up and somebody's screaming, just frantically screaming, my baby, my baby, my baby. You don't just run in and say, we'll get her or we'll get him or we'll get your baby. You've got to look at them and take 10 seconds and say, ma'am, is this your child? Yes. Is it your son or daughter? It's my daughter. Where is she? And they'll look at you and say, inside or in her room or upstairs, that's not enough. Have them point to where their child is. And then find out, if they have any medical issues, how much do they weigh? No more than 10 seconds. You should be able to get in. That's going to give you huge information. And more importantly, share that information on the radio as part of your first arrival, maybe during your 360 if you can do one. Maybe after you give your initial arrival report, you step off the rig and you're starting to pull lines and you're starting to size up a little further and you have this interaction. Get that out on the radio so that the crew's coming in have that intel. Again, Firefighter Rescue Survey has taught us that information can increase your chances of the victim surviving, not just being rescued, but surviving. If you'll notice, watching the Super Bowl yesterday, neither the Eagles or the Chiefs spiked the football on the five-yard line. They waited till they got in the end zone to celebrate. And the same goes for us. Don't spike the patient on the five-yard line in the front yard thinking you saved them. you got to get him to the ER. you got to get him to a definitive EMS care as soon as possible. That is vital to their survival. So think about EMS. And that's what we talked about in our article this month, um, Tactical Considerations for Known Rescues. Brian and I talked about rescue group supervisors and medical group supervisors to consolidate those key objectives to minimize radio traffic, to maximize execution and accountability, and make that time-to-task ratio uh, as short as possible. Both medical group supervisor and a rescue group supervisor based on what you have. So read that article, everybody. I think you're going to find it useful. Um, And if you haven't, uh, maybe you can search for Civilian Rescue, The Reason We Exist, which we wrote about a year and a half maybe going on two years ago now, it came out of FDIC uh, a couple of years ago. When you um, yeah. are talking with your company officers and talking about using a, possibly using a rescue group supervisor um, and having them fulfill that role, what are some of the key talking points? What are the, some of the key aspects of that role that you want from your company officers when you're doing these types of drills, getting them ready for this type of call? You know, the, one, of the, one of the biggest things that I talk to the company officers about um, with that is ensuring that they understand the totality of what that responsibility is and reaffirming for them that they have my full support and authority to make the decisions for which they're tasked. So, nice. you know, how, how often has, and Andoni, you and I can go back to when we were volunteers in Monterey County, right? And what would we do when we would drill? We'd go in, search the smoky room, find the rescue mannequin, drag them out, and just drop them at the front door, right? That, I mean, that's just, that was the standard thing. And once you start getting in the mindset, no, there, there's more beyond that, you know, Rescue group soup, if we don't have a medical set up yet because of a delay in resources or whatever the case is, you've got some more responsibilities, right? Rescue group soup, you've got a responsibility for secondary searches. You've got a responsibility for the entire um, area that you've been assigned. If you're, we're talking about, you know, two-plex, three-plex, four-plex, you write those types of things and getting them out of the mindset of doing the very most with the very least, Hey, you know, if I give you an objective and 
you need to tell me, Chief, I need at least two more companies to do that. Copy. You're going to get 131, right. you're going to get 132, and they're going to report to you right away. So really giving them that empowerment. And I've seen that, uh, I've seen that grow and flourish in the last few years. Um, I've had some good jobs where I've had a couple of different um, lieutenants come in, and, and I give them that task. And it's very clear on the radio. Offensive strategy, your objectives are fire attack search, handle the two out, you know, when we're in a non-confirmed uh victim profile, and they embrace it and they run with it, and they're just seeing so much growth, I couldn't be prouder of them. Um, and the other part of that is the, the thing that we preach when we're out there doing the train the trainer is that informal uh, division soup to div- or group soup to division soup, group soup conversation, that coordination, right, yeah. and not tying up the radio with talking to me in the command post. I don't... Right. You report to me, your, you give me your benchmarks, but if we're still in the middle of a rescue, I'll see that we're achieving our benchmarks, you know, that type of stuff. So as they get, as they get more comfortable with it, um, you know, there's, there's an excitement that's coming with, wow, okay, this is how we do things. You know, I'm in a, I'm in an organization where we don't get as many jobs as my previous organization. So, mm-hmm you know, talking about it and talking about the potential and the ability, um, you know, we have, a, we have so many apartments in our town and how we don't have more apartment fires, it's kind of surprising to me, but when we get them, it's like, okay, it's going to be all hands because I only have 16 people on duty every day. So, right. you know, that, you, you know, it's, it's, it's finite resources, but that's the stuff that I really give them. And, you know, I, right, you know, we right. always hear the whole safety officer thing, right? Well, what about a safety officer? You got to have a safety officer. And I really empower them. It's like, it's your job for safety. It's your job for accountability. Right. You know, I, right. and, and it's been, it's been successful. And I've been, I've just been, I couldn't be prouder of, of them. And, you know, one of the things I wanted to throw in, you know, on your review of victim profiling and the signal, you know, again, the signal is something that your dispatchers can obviously get for you. The other thing is yeah. some people are thinking, how, how am I going to, how am I going to ask all those questions? It's going to take longer than 10 seconds. Remember to go back to the whole listening thing. You know, sometimes that person's going to just blurb out a lot of information that's going to answer your questions right up front, you know, so so you know it's it's a keen it's a keen you got to control the conversation but listen to what they say because they can give you a number of the answers that you seek um, and then you know I wanted to share a quick little story when I was battalion chief down in Salinas it was the second shift of a 48 and we got a, a single family dwelling job first thing eight o'clock in the morning first engine arrived a smoke showing from the front door with the owner of the house standing out front saying everybody's out of the house. Now, we didn't we had we weren't even talking about victim profiling back then, but it was reported on the radio. Mm-hmm. We went in, got a knock on a kitchen fire. We still did a search. But uh, it had been announced on the radio, right? And there there's a lot of evidence to the contrary now about not announcing, you know, people are reporting everybody's out of the house because it's putting us in a different mindset and we don't want to be in that right. mindset. We still want to be in that rescue right. mindset. Um so, you know, as a BC, I go in afterwards because I always like to, you know, see how, how the job we did and all that stuff. And there was a bedroom at the end of the hall that had a closed door. And um, because everybody was in the, oh, the building's evacuated mindset, 
Nobody bothered to check that room. Well, that particular room was sublet. It was being rented to somebody, and that person was asleep in bed in a um, cold smoke-filled room. And um, so from that point on, we started driving home with our company officers. Not only is everybody out of the house, do you rent space to anybody? Because the assumption was that particular individual worked in an ag ag industry that he usually went to work at 4 in the morning. That particular morning, he had not gone to work. So words matter when it comes to communicating. Yeah. And... um, and the other part out there, everybody, is that just because we hear that or we're told that everybody's out of the house doesn't mean that we bypass a closed door. If we're sent to right. search, we search, and we search everywhere. So Right, right. Yeah, you know, that's, that's, I'm glad you brought that up, Brett, because that's something that came up in a class. I forget where it was. Um, where it's like, are you saying that we don't search? Of course not. That's, that's nope. not at all what we're saying. What we're saying is is our best limited best intel at the time is that everyone's out. That does not mean we don't search, um, but it is something to take into consideration if can other conditions show that we shouldn't be going in. And that's where our friend Chief Marser from FDNY would say, "Look, if it's not survivable, don't go in." And that's that's why yep. it's kind of a sliding scale where. Survivability profile really is on the on the side of the firefighter, errors on the side of the firefighter safety, whereas victim profile errors on the side of the civilian's uh, uh, rescue. And both are important. They're not mutually exclusive. But to your point, um, it does amaze me how many times people hear everyone's reported out, and then all of a sudden people back off. They don't search. Or they don't search as, as thoroughly. That's not what we're saying at all. We're just saying that don't don't apply as much risk as if you were told firm victim profile, which is a totally different animal. Um, yep. You may otherwise go inside, inside a building that you would otherwise not go in just because you were told there's a confirmed victim profile. That's why the signal is so important. You know, you mentioned that uh, the cold smoke room, I had the exact same thing happen, fortunately without a victim, but we had the same thing happen uh, when I was a BC um, house fire, kitchen fire, everyone reported primary search complete, secondary search complete, all clear. We only say all clear after the secondary search is completed by a separate crew so they get fresh eyes. And 20 minutes later, I'm, I'm bebopping through the house just to take a look at the extension and what we had. And sure enough, there's a locked door leads to a bedroom, and the bedroom had cold smoke to the floor. Fortunately, nobody was in there. Um, but, you know, I could tell, I could go on with other stories. I won't, I won't take the time tonight to do that. But yeah, you have to – the culture there, everyone has to understand what words mean, and they have to ask the right questions and always be leaning into the rescue and, and, and err on the side of misinformation. And we've seen, you know, just as many fire departments not search because somebody says everyone's out not a, and not search at all, even if conditions allowed for it, and then victims can be missed. So I'm really proud of the American Fire Service for getting back to the victim and why we exist, and what we're here for. And it's not just the rescue companies, the truck companies, the squads. It's everybody. And it's not just the firefighters and company officers. It's the chiefs. It's the battalion chiefs, the district chiefs out there who are running those companies each day to really permeate that message down in all that you do, permeate it down through your training, 
send the message, hey, we save lives here. We're not going to be stupid. We're not going to be foolish. We're not going to take unnecessary risk, but this is a dangerous job, and with it comes risk. But we want to take calculated, educated risk, given an environment that not all the information is there. You're going to have misinformation, half information, information coming at you that's missed, information coming at you that's frantic, um, and it's going to be in a compressed time frame that you're going to have to make potential life and death decisions. And so it's a judgment call. And so many, have you seen this too, Brett? So many of our students across the country, typically the, least, the, the lesser experienced students, they'll, they'll ask for absolutes. They'll ask for black and white absolutes so that they can not get in trouble, for example, or say they're looking for always and never. <laughs> and yeah. they usually, yeah. and what's, what's been your thoughts on that over the years as you're getting that pushback? Well, you know, I think that's where my that's where you and I were talking about, you know, the fifty thousand shades of leadership, um, and yeah. um, and and really just, and that's my organization. You know, I, I joined the organization, and they were a very very black and white organization, and um, it's you know, and a lot of it was out of uh, out of fear, out of fear for being in trouble, and. So it takes a long time to shift the rudder of that big ship and, you know, gain the trust and let people feel comfortable standing outside of that box and reaffirming for them um, that we're empowering you to gather this information and make the best decision that you can make given your size up, your risk assessment, your own situation and implement right. that plan. And that's where your chief, if we come in and we feel like you've chosen plan A when plan B is going to be more successful, then we're going to, we're going to intervene. And it, but it's not going to be an intervention of you're getting paper in your file. It's going to be, okay, what did you right. see versus what did I see? And what can we both right. add to our experience toolbox? Right. You know, right. and I love I love how you you know your relationship you know with the Thunderbirds, um, you know your your family relationship from way back, and I love when you stand up and uh, and you show the picture of the ejection, right, coming out of the inverted yeah. loop, yeah. and you know yeah. you talk about you know the they they have three plays, and you know when when I was the IC at the air show down in California for all those years, we worked with those flight teams, and it's like. Yeah, they have three plays and they practice them for thousands and thousands of hours a year and still yeah. they had to have an ejection. And, you know, we how many buildings does somebody have in their jurisdiction? I probably have thirty thousand different structures in in my right. town. Right. And you know, that's 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 fitting three or four plays into thirty thousand different potential scenarios and it it's it's just black and white. Black and white is, you know, is can be dangerous. You know, when you get t- tunneled in on that it one and only thing, it can be not necessarily. It can be, and I think it. Do you think it's a derivative of, of of being afraid of getting in trouble, wanting those absolutes from the bosses? Well, or, I, you know, you there was a time where I there was a time where I thought that, and I think to a certain extent, depending on the generation of firefighter that you're dealing with, mm-hmm. I think that's the case. But you know, and and this is not a this is not a dig on any generation of firefighter. But as as we bring on these younger members of our organization who, for their entire lives, have had immediate access to the answer that they seek, 
right, through right. social media, yeah. through their phones, through computers, through whatever the case is, they can get the answer right now. And right. when when you can't deliver that, it, it causes it causes in conflict, you know, internal conflict. Well, but I need yes, this answer anxiety, right now. Like, yeah. Yeah, it causes that anxiety yeah. and those types of things. So, um, and that's where you know, dr- you know, that's where the drill ground and us creating all of those different environments, and and giving them those different. Okay, here's your curveball now. Are you going to go right. with a confirmed right. rescue play? Are you going to stick with a Division A concept? Um, are you going to VES now? You know, and mm-hmm. and giving them as much real life as you can to force that quicker decision making in the safer environment of the drill grounds. That's, that's one of the right. things I think is so critical, you know, is, yeah. is creating that before it happens. And I, I love that you accentuated, you know, our, our Lloyd Lehman algorithm of size up your own situation. And, and yep. I love that word own because it's your own situation. You can't ask me what ifs if I haven't been in that situation. That is, that is your own situation, not my own situation. And you have right. to own that situation. In other words, right. it, has, it has two meanings. I have to own it and realize this is all I got. My own situation is I got one engine with two guys. <laughs> or my right. own situation is I'm, you know, FDNY and the planet's here and another planet's coming. Or, or our friends in L.A. City. But that's not everyone's own situation. Most, most departments in the country listening to this, your own situation is is not the resource level that you want. It's going to be a lot less staffing, a lot less apparatus, not as timely. Um, And I can't answer your own situation, but you have to own it. You can't say do over or game out, game over or tap out. You got to make it work. And that's why it's such a critical part of mental size up. You can't just, you know, you have to be able to take a gun to a gunfight and some, and, and when you take a knife to a gunfight, you're going to get, you're going to get yourself uh, hurt. And, uh, but at the same time, there's a time to put your neck out there and risk a little more based on that victim profile, based on what you have. And I think you would agree that as we go through the country, you find pockets of America where when we're doing these classes, that pockets of America where there's such a dogmatic adherence to policy. It's not a, it's not a mission-driven culture, but it's a policy-driven culture, for example. Um, and so the fear of getting in trouble outweighs what others would call common sense, what others would consider a no-brainer. Um, yep. People, the, some parts of the country are just hesitant because, well, you know, we didn't check that box. It didn't have a two-outline established. It didn't have a backup line established, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, what are your thoughts on some of that stuff? You know, it's fun. I, I... – it's funny. I, I forget where we were. This was years ago, and uh, we were we were introducing that concept that can be very challenging for some people about really engaging yeah. that two out team, right? And that right. that ancillary duties part about hey, if you're in visual contact, con- you know, if you can see each other, get ten or twelve feet in and help pump some hose, keep an eye on the conditions, right? right? Those types of things. And remember, right. remembering that one chief officer who was just it, it couldn't, it, it was not computing. Nope, that's a violation of policy. That's a violation of OSHA. Technically, absolutely right. Not trying to throw anybody under the bus here, but in the right, very right, next right. conversation, I, I think we were talking about that same organization 
had adopted and was and and had fully adopted VEIS. And it's like, right. okay, but if you're if you're willing to let one person go in off the ladder to do a search by themselves of the single room, what 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 is the difference there? Um, right. And I think right. it, I think it I think it produced some very good thought provoking conversation. Um, yeah. And I think that you know it it's it's not about it's about making sure that yes, you operate as a team, you operate as a company, but it, it's not that you're sewn together at the hip, right? You can you right. can be 15 feet apart, performing a couple of different responsibilities, but still have accountability and safety eyes for each other, and getting people right. more comfortable with that component of you know how you know of, of how to operate on the fire ground, and. Right. Um, and, and again, it's kind of it's it's full circle, right? I mean, there was a time where we all knew what we had that we had jobs to do, and we'd go up and do it. And then there was, you know, really the reaffirmation. You know, two and two out was not new in OSHA; it was just kind of reaffirmed. And so that really drove the two people together, you know, concept a lot. And I think that the fire ground, um, because of just interpretation and personal kind of implementation of their own interpretation, I think that slowed down our fire ground a little bit. And mm-hmm. um, now as, again, getting more aggressive with search and more aggressive with the R and Recio, right, rescue right at the top, um, we're starting to see that comfort with we are professionals. We know how to do searches. Yeah. We know how to attack fires. We know how to ventilate. We know how to do these things. So let's do it with a system in place that still provides for safety, efficiency, and accountability, good risk assessment, good size up, good communication, but we're getting those tasks accomplished more rapidly for Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Precisely. Love it. That's a good point to end on. I love it. Hey, everybody, thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody, very uh, much. I know a lot of you. I know a lot of you out there are going to be listening to this um, recorded version of this, um, not live, and that's typically what happens. I think the last show we did, we had um, somewhere in the neighborhood of 2,500 listeners afterwards. Uh, that happens. So if you're listening to this and it's recorded, um, please reach out at info at and ask if, you, if you're interested in us coming out and doing some training for you. Um, or if you're interested in having the, the uh, online Calm the Chaos class, which is very robust. You're going to have a lot of fun. There's a lot of quizzes, interaction. comes with 100 sets and reps, SimLab, um, and it's self-paced for your, for your folks. A lot of departments are adopting this in mass. Uh, and then we can come out and do a train-the-trainer to help your department train your folks in the future on incident command, tactic strategy, and, and victim-centric operations. So... Um, Want to do a little shout-out to my friend Brian. He had a previous engagement tonight. Uh, thank you, brother. It's been great to work with you. Want to uh, just take a moment to acknowledge our dear friend, um, Bobby Halton, um, who is up in heaven looking down. And uh, just thank everybody listening, and thank you, especially my special guest tonight, Brian, uh, Brett Loomis, who is a dear friend and instructor with our team at trainfirefighters.com. God bless everybody listening to this. God bless your families, those you serve, those you lead, and God bless the American Fire Service. Thanks, everybody.
Welcome to the Command Show. Time five and 